But uh, yes, great to be with you this morning. And uh, we're going to look at Matthew 28 in a moment. But um, let's, uh, just, let's just pray again, shall we, as we, um, as we come to this. Matthew 28 we're going to look at. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And we pray that you would speak your message to our hearts this morning. Please show us what you want us to see from your word. Please particularly show us who Jesus is. And as you show us who Jesus is, we pray that by your spirit you draw our hearts to worship him, to adore him, to see his glory, and that you'd encourage us for that which you want to send us out to do this week. Amen. Who do you think you are? What rights do you think you've got? I wonder if you've ever experienced a response along those lines or feared responses along those lines, as you've sought to tell people the good news about Jesus. So far in this Getting Going mini-series, we've seen that we're sent out by Jesus, as the Father sent him, to proclaim a message of forgiveness for sins in his name. And yet, if we're honest, going with the sending Lord, as John encouraged us to do last week, isn't always easy, is it? And telling people a message of forgiveness requires telling them something about their sin problem, which doesn't always go down so well, does it? How dare you tell me I'm sinful? What makes you think you can give me a message of forgiveness? What gives you the right to tell me I've got a problem and need to do what you say about it? What right have you got? On whose authority can we go and tell someone else that they have a problem and need to do something about it? And how can we keep going with this task of proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? What comfort is there for us in the face of opposition when people just don't want to listen or maybe even reject us? Or as is the case for some of Jesus' followers around the world, when people persecute us? For this message. What comfort is there? Let's see what answers Jesus gives for those questions this morning as we look at his words in Matthew 28. The passage we're going to read in a moment is well known as the Great Commission. Before we get to that, earlier in chapter 28 of this book, Matthew records how Jesus had appeared to some women who were his friends and had been to visit his tomb. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Verse 9 of Matthew 28, Greetings, Jesus said to them. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And describing what would have been at least a week later, after the day Jesus rose from the dead, we read in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. We don't know exactly how many people appeared on this occasion, how many people Jesus appeared to on this occasion. Obviously, the 11 were present, uh, were present and uh, presumably the women would have gone as well. It seems impossible to think they would have just stayed behind, another chance to see the risen Jesus. In fact, it's possible that this was the appearance that the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 when Jesus appeared to 500 brothers and sisters. 500 of his followers. 
Whoever they were, this group of people knew Jesus had been executed on a Roman cross. They knew he'd been dead and buried in a tomb. And yet they traveled to Galilee to meet Jesus, expecting to see him. And they did, alive, risen. And so they worshipped. But some hesitated to worship the risen Jesus. Perhaps these were followers of Jesus who, unlike the eleven and some of the women, hadn't yet seen the risen Jesus. Seeing for the first time, these followers hesitated. Perhaps still adjusting to the idea that Jesus would rise from the dead. Slow to grasp it, even though he told them beforehand that it would happen. Maybe, as someone has suggested, their hesitation sprang from the fact that the risen Jesus it was both the same, but yet not the same as he had been before. There was a mystery about him. Either way, the risen Jesus comes to them and says these words. Matthew 28, at verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what's the first thing we want to see from these verses, the first way that Jesus answers our questions this morning? Firstly, in verse 18, recognize the authority of Jesus. Recognize the authority of Jesus. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I find the authority of Jesus just so easy to forget. Look around you at the culture we live in. Does it look like Jesus is in charge? How about in your school or college? Is Jesus the boss there? The thing is, wherever we look, we see other authorities. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your connections, the people who you know. Whatever it is, life often doesn't feel like Jesus has authority in every place or situation that we find ourselves in. Far from appearing to be the Lord of the entire universe, it can appear like Jesus is my personal hobby. That's often how those, of us, those around us view him. That's nice for Dan. He likes a bit of religion. Jesus is his personal hobby. The media constantly feed us with the impression that Jesus is irrelevant, having nothing to do with real life. Someone captured it really well at uh, somewhere I was last week. He said, out there, out there, it really doesn't feel like Christ's world. Christ doesn't necessarily inform the structure of this reality. He, it doesn't necessarily all about him. Jesus is just an optional package or an imaginary friend for saddos. Does Jesus have anything to do with those people going past us on Portswood Road right now? Does Jesus have any authority over your colleagues at work, over the people on campus if you're going to be involved in events week next week? We'll recognize from Jesus' opening words that we're talking about no pocket-sized mini-Jesus. No, this Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. 
I used to work for a privately owned company, and within reason, the chairman could do what he wanted. It was said that the company was his train set. He owned it. He built it up. He directed it the way he wanted it to go. Well, this universe is Jesus' train set. He owns it. He created it, and he keeps it going. Even that person you know who mocks Christianity, who maybe laughs at you for believing in Jesus, even he or she was created by him and is kept alive by him. Even they display something of his glory. But it's not just that Jesus owns and created and keeps everything going. That's true, but we need to recognize something more. We need to see that Jesus reigns, Jesus rules, Jesus is the king. This is a theme that's important to Matthew's gospel. The very first words of this book explain that this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew lists the genealogy of Jesus, that is his family tree, who he descends from. Why? Because this is important. We need to see that Jesus descended from Israel's King David. Why? Because of a promise God had made to his people hundreds of years before. The Lord declared to King David that he, the Lord himself, would raise up a son from David's offspring and establish his kingdom forever. And then many years later, though still hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, God gave the prophet Daniel a vision. One like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is who the Magi were talking about in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. When they came to Jerusalem to ask, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is why the king at the time, King Herod, was disturbed and tried to kill the baby Jesus. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 2 if you don't remember it from Christmas. This is why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and her colt in chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel. Verses 4 to 9 of Matthew 21, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road While others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna was a word of praise. It it meant save us, we pray. It became a a word of praise. The son of David. They're seeing something of this king arriving. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Matthew wants us to see that the king has come. That as Jesus enters Jerusalem, God's long-promised king is arriving. And this theme is present all the way through the crucifixion too in Matthew 28. With mockery, with abuse, although he is the king, 
And even in chapter 27, it tells us that even above his head, when they crucified him, they placed the written charge against him. What did it say? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Except no one expected the Messiah, the long-promised King, to be crucified. How can he reign forever if he's dead? Well, you know the answer to that question. As on the third day, he rose, and now a week or so later, he declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You might want to worship him in your heart now as you just think about who this Jesus is, the king with all authority, God's long-promised king, a king over all the nations, king for all time, king over everything, the Messiah, the Christ. Do you see it? Do you see it? Recognize his authority. Recognize the authority of Jesus. If you do, then you'll have boldness to proclaim the message of forgiveness of sins in his name. The authority of Jesus far exceeds the authority of your boss or your head teacher or that person who you fear speaking to about him. Jesus is king. As uh, someone puts it in a well-known quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus is king. Have confidence to be sent out by King Jesus. An ambassador of the United States of America speaks with the authority of the United States of America as they represent them. A police officer operates with the authority of of the law. A disciple sent out by Jesus operates with the authority of the sovereign king of the entire universe. Maybe you're beginning to recognize the authority of King Jesus for the first time this morning. If you are, then respond by repenting. It's what he told people to do. And he said, the kingdom is here. Repent. Turn away from your life that you've lived without him, that you've lived in rebellion against him, rejecting him. Turn away from that life and put your trust in him to rescue you. He's an awesomely powerful king. You need to respect him, but you don't need to fear being rejected by him. He invites you to come to him. Do come and talk to me or Sim or Steve afterwards if you want to ask us any questions about that. But what is it that we're sent to do? What mission does our king charge us with? Secondly, we want to see that we need to respond to the command of Jesus. Verses 19 to 20, well, 18 again. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, Jesus continues in verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As God's promised king, who is sovereign over all the nations, Jesus commissions to go and make his disciples, go, go make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples is Jesus' command. Well, what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who follows the person and pattern of Jesus. Discipleship is about drawing close to Jesus and becoming more like him. Disciples of Jesus are committed to Jesus above everything else. He is their Lord. He is their master. 
Before we think a bit more about what discipleship means and how disciples are made, let's just answer the question of who is this command for? Who did Jesus intend this command to be obeyed by? Was it just for those disciples who he spoke those words to originally? Would this group complete that mission of making disciples of all the nations? Well, clearly not. This mission is still ongoing today. Okay then, but but who's this command for now? Is it just for a, a select group of committed Christians? Perhaps those who are just keen and brave enough to cross the world to take the gospel to some remote tribe. Now, this is a command for all disciples. Jesus doesn't make a distinction here. There's no exemption clause for less committed Christians. You are either a disciple of Jesus or you are not. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you are commanded to make other disciples of Jesus. It's plain and simple. Okay, if this is a command for all disciples, then who are we to make disciples of? Well, again, it's fairly clear, isn't it? All the nations. But does that mean the other side of the world? Yes. But it also means Portswood and the rest of Southampton. In case you didn't realize, Southampton is part of all the nations. This command is not just for people who are sent to other nations, but to all nations. It's a command for all of us, to all those people who Jesus has placed us to live among. And that's all kinds of people as well. It's no longer just one particular race, one particular nation, but all people from whatever background, whatever religion, whoever they are, whatever social standing. I wonder who are the different types of people Jesus might be sending you to reach. Those in your school or college or university, those in your workplace, those in your family or your neighbours, people in your community, wherever it is you live your life. What could this look like? What could this look like in your workplace? Could you make space for a lunch break and take it with colleagues rather than by yourself or just working through? Could you suggest a weekly or fortnightly or monthly lunch hour at the pub on a Friday? Spend time getting to know your colleagues. Could you play sport or go for a run after work occasionally? Or even, and this is making sacrifices for the gospel, even go to the gym with them beforehand. Could you be more prayerful about your day at work or your day wherever you are? Looking out for opportunities to speak, sensitive to the Spirit, conducting yourself in a way that models the gospel. Or if you spend more time at home, how could you get to know people in your community? Maybe being more regular, going to the same shop, trying to get to the same till, it's the same coffee shop. Walk your dog or walk your children, whoever you walk. Walk them in the same place at the same time. Get to know the people around your neighborhood. Uh, I recently had a revelation with my hair. Uh, for 10 years or so, Joe used to cut my hair. In fact, I don't know if she's here this morning, but Kathy Pryor used to cut my hair when I was a student. But she's not here, I don't think. There you go. There's a nice little story for you. Um, uh, but, uh, sorry, uh, Joe used to cut my hair because we bought a pair of clippers once for 25 quid and it's lasted so many years. It was a really good financial investment. But then a couple of months ago, I went to a hairdresser because Joe just refused eventually to cut my hair. But this hairdresser 
had some contact with our church. And, uh, and we had a good conversation, just nothing major, but we had a good conversation. And I thought, all these years I've been, Joe's has been cutting my hair, I've missed out on an opportunity here to be building a friendship with someone who's outside of, of the church bubble, someone who needs to hear about Jesus. And I could have been going and visiting that person and uh, building up that friendship. So now that's what I do, go to that hairdresser and, uh, and build up that friendship. Maybe it's things that we need to do normally. We, most of us cut our hair. Most of us eat meals, but perhaps you could have a meal with a neighbor. We don't have to think about things to add onto a list of things to do. It's just about how we live our life. Do we live our life orientated around making disciples? And it doesn't have to be something we do alone. Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. Maybe there's someone who you could engage in this mission with in community. And then remembering from Luke 24, and that message we had on that a few weeks ago, once we've reached people, we need to proclaim the good news to them, the forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name, so that if we repent, if we turn to Jesus and trust in him, he'll forgive us of our sin, and we can enjoy that relationship with him. Make disciples. This is the purpose of the church. Maybe this morning, along with me, you need to obey King Jesus and recommit your life to partnering with him on his mission to make disciples of all nations, including the UK, making this your priority. For some, maybe Jesus does want you to go abroad and make disciples in another nation. And even if not, we can all be part of making disciples in nations other than our own by prayer and by encouraging our mission partners, writing to them, emailing them, maybe even supporting them financially, visiting them. Jesus commands all disciples to make disciples. And then he describes two things which characterize disciple-making, two things that will happen as disciples are made. When disciples are made, they'll need to respond, first of all, in baptism, Baptism is a sign of entering the disciple relationship with Jesus, joining his community of disciples, having him as your Lord. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament, the Bible teaches that baptism symbolizes dying to our old sinful self, being washed clean from our sin, and rising again to live a new life in relationship with God. Notice that it follows that when someone becomes a disciple, the next step is to be baptized. And we see this pattern repeated again and again in the New Testament. After Jesus gave this commission, people became disciples and then they were baptized. Maybe there might be some here this morning who need to respond by obeying this, this command of Jesus. The second way Jesus says these new disciples will need to respond is in learning to obey everything he's commanded. Notice that they taught everything after they became a disciple. There are no entrance exams to becoming a disciple of Jesus. Simple faith in his death on your behalf to save you is all you need. All you need is to trust in Jesus to become a disciple. He calls you to begin following him as you are. Come as you are, even this morning. And then once you've become a disciple, you begin the exciting journey of growing as a disciple. What are we to teach? What are we to teach those disciples? Everything Jesus commanded the first disciples, which we could think of beyond what he just said, to include what he said and did. 
These are Jesus' commands that we're to teach. Not Old Testament law, but Jesus' commands. The focus is on him. And it's on everything that he commands. Everything is needed and relevant until the very end of the age. And notice, these aren't just teachings. It's not just instruction, not just nice intellectual ideas. But it's instruction to be obeyed. We're to put into practice what Jesus taught us in our lives. But being a disciple of Jesus involves hearing, understanding, and obeying all of his teaching. Those first disciples literally followed Jesus around. Where he went, they went. But it had an impact on their lives. They weren't just following him like a dog follows its owner on a lead. Because they followed Jesus' life, they learned how to become like him. If you get a job as an apprentice in a factory, you get shown how to make whatever that factory makes. The people who are training you show you how to do it. And as you watch them do it and make things with them, you learn how to make the thing for yourself. Until one day, you're the one training the future apprentices. And so disciples are like apprentices, learning how to become like Jesus, to copy his life. As Jesus himself said in chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. We ought not to still be what we were before. We won't be perfect yet. We've not graduated from the school of Jesus' discipleship. But we ought to see some change, some difference in our lives, some growing likeness to the one to whom we've been apprenticed. Jesus spent a great deal of time guiding and instructing the disciples in their growth. And he sends them out to do the same. So this morning, maybe we need to reflect, who is it that we're guiding and instructing? Who are we teaching to obey everything Jesus commanded? Who am I discipling? And whilst we're asking that question, we might ask, who's discipling me? Who's teaching and instructing me? Maybe if you want some tips on how to do that, we could start with Matthew's Gospel, like a handbook on discipleship, although we need to move on to all of the Bible. It's a big task. How is it possible? How can we do this? We'll we'll see that in a moment. But first, just let's notice one more thing about disciples, about Jesus' command. He said to baptize his disciples into a name. Whose name did he say those disciples should be made of? The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It says, God, Jesus is one with the Father. They share the same name. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a powerful miracle worker. He's not just a great king. No, he's the eternal son of the eternal Father. Jesus is God. And that's why when they saw him, they worshipped him. Again, this is a theme that Matthew began right near the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1, verses 22 And 23, he recorded, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now finally, we see how Jesus' last words in this gospel echo this title with which he was first introduced. Verse 20, Rely on the presence of Jesus, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us, remains with us always. The word always here uh, more literally means the whole of every day. It's not just the end that it's in sight here. 
for each day as we live it until the end of the age. The time, the age that we're in now is the time between Jesus' death and his resurrection and when he returns. The end of the age will be the end of history as we know it, when his kingdom is seen in all its fullness, when his kingly authority and reign is ultimately displayed, when every knee bows before the one whom now, even now, has all authority. As Philippians 2 proclaims, God has exalted Jesus to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Until then, though, rely on his presence with you as you seek to obey his command to make disciples. And one thing this means is that we go in prayer. We can ask Jesus to be with us. We can seek his help as we go to make disciples. We can talk to him silently as our friend or colleague or neighbor asks us a question about Jesus or Christianity. We're not alone with the promise of his spirit with us. This is just meant to be comfort for when disciple-making gets tough. No. Enjoy the presence of Jesus every day for the sake of enjoying the presence of Jesus and take comfort from that when disciple-making gets tough. As we finish, can I just reassure you about what kind of Lord Jesus is? It may be that some of us are feeling challenged this morning, perhaps deeply aware of our weakness, conscious that our life is not orientated around making disciples. Jesus, in all his authority, is not an irritable, bad-tempered boss. He's not reviewing your performance as a disciple-maker and deciding how to punish you based on your failing of meeting targets. Jesus has been given all authority. He is the awesome, mighty king, and yet he's full of compassion, love, kindness, gentleness. He's the prince of peace. You can come to him this morning in all of your weakness. He already knows it. He already knows how you're feeling challenged. And you can ask him his help. And then having come to him, having come to him and received his grace, go in his mission, in obedience to his command, in the power of his authority, and in the strength of his presence with you. Make disciples of Southampton, Hampshire, and all nations.